Tonight I wanted to talk about the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths. And I'd like to start out, I guess, identifying or acknowledging is that the process that we're engaged in this practice, it's, it's not a process of becoming. You know, most of us have already done that. You know, becoming, trying to become a better person or somebody more admirable or maybe somebody more lovable or more worthy. Um, and that's not what we're really engaged in. I mean, sometimes those things happen, but not always. We don't always get admired, no matter how deep our practice may go, and, and sometimes uh, we're not even that lovable, actually. Um, <laughs> we can still get in each other's way and cause trouble. Rather, it's, it's a process of being rather than becoming. In other words, it's learning how to inwardly sit still, and be. And in that process of being, just kind of in a sense, leaving oneself alone, one awakens to one's true nature. Instead of busying ourselves becoming. So what are the kinds of things that we discover when we are being, when we are just leaving ourselves alone, when we begin to, to move inward? Well, what begins to happen is we begin to wake up. We begin to wake up, and we begin to let go of this notion of becoming. We begin to relax a bit. And we begin to wake up. And of course, that's what all of us here in this retreat, whether you recognize it or not, or whether it feels like it or not, we're all engaged in this process of awakening. And the things that we're awakening to are Certainly, something very radical, which is we're awakening to other possibilities of relating. You know, rather than living a life out of habit, just following our habitual conditioning, habitually reacting to the situations we find ourselves in, always finding ourselves preoccupied or worried or disconnected from the here and now, uh, what we're doing is we're learning to relate to our life in a fundamentally different way. We're also awakening to innate qualities of mind. As the mind gets still, as the mind begins to sit still within itself, we begin to awaken to qualities that are somewhat obstructed, obstructed by our restlessness, our self-criticisms, our self-judgments, our self-concepts of who we are, what's possible. We begin to touch these innate qualities that we all share. They're aspects of our true nature. Qualities like loving kindness, compassion, joy, generosity, a love of truth. A love of truth. And this innate intelligence that we all share, whether we're on this path, whether we're practicing or not, this innate intelligence of awareness another aspect of our true nature. We're also engaged in a process that requires an enormous amount of patience and perseverance and courage. And what we're awakening to, we're awakening from this confusion in the mind. And what we're discovering is a very profound truth. 
and that is we're discovering for ourselves what brings peace. What brings peace and what brings freedom from suffering. And this discovery is not secondhand. It doesn't rely on a particular authority. It doesn't rely on somebody giving it to us. And in fact, the Buddha in his, in his own teachings discouraged the, the reliance on secondhand knowledge, discovered, discouraged the reliance on authority. And instead what he said was, look for yourself. Investigate for yourself. Take a look at yourself. Take a look at the world that you're living in. And you'll see for yourself. Perhaps the most crucial, or certainly it is a crucial insight that the Buddha discovered along the way, was he discovered that in seeing things as they are, we liberate ourselves. Simply that. In seeing things as they are, we discover liberation. We discover our true nature. The Buddha described his discoveries in very, I believe, articulate, detailed, clear ways. In some ways, his teachings can provide kind of a framework, not as an authority, but as a framework for understanding our own practice, for understanding our own insights and difficulties and obstacles that we encounter. And what the Buddha discovered was, of course, what is known as the Four Noble Truths. And he discovered this by simply taking a look in a very, very sustained way at his experience. He made these discoveries, these four discoveries. In many ways, they're just one. The first is that there is suffering. So he took a look at his experience, and he discovered discontent, unsatisfactoriness, unhappiness, sense of separation, longing, incompletion. Second was the, he discovered the cause of suffering, the source of our suffering. In other words, he continued his investigation on. He didn't just stop there at that recognition. But he explored it more deeply and came to an understanding of what the origin of suffering was. Third noble truth is discovering the cessation of suffering, liberation from suffering. And the fourth, which makes the Buddha quite unique in some ways, is that he discovered the path leading to freedom. So beginning with the first noble truth, that there is suffering. When we talk about suffering, another phrase, another word that you may hear in the Dharma world, Buddhist world, is of course dukkha, which is the Pali, suffering. Suffering is just one translation of dukkha. Dukkha has many meanings, but I'm going to limit the meanings to um, just a few. Dukkha means discontent. There's discontent in the mind, separation or disconnection, unsatisfactoriness, kind of being out of harmony with nature. That's suffering. 
And of course, we don't have to come to a meditation center to recognize that truth. Uh, simply opening any newspaper, any day of the week, any time, any city, any town. And that's what we'll, of course, encounter, uh, is we'll encounter that first noble truth of suffering. We can encounter it within ourselves very quickly. All we have to do is come on retreat, actually, and actually sit here in this situation, in this silence. And for most of us, we will inevitably encounter some expression of discontent, maybe many expressions of discontent in the mind. That is, of course, the mind that's engaging in struggles, struggling and resisting and fighting, the mind that's in conflict with itself. But, of course, it's not enough simply to know that one is suffering or that there's suffering happening, whether it's in oneself or the world. We also need to begin to transform our relationship to that fact or to that insight. We need to begin to train our hearts and minds. And that's, of course, what we're doing here is training our hearts and minds to bring an open-hearted attention and investigation into this discontent when it arises. It requires really entering into this fundamentally different relationship, one that in many ways goes up against our conditioning. Things that we often need to open to if they arise or things like, we often have to open up to our vulnerability. So many of us have built up so many defense mechanisms in our daily life. We can structure our life in a certain way. We can distract ourselves in so many, many ways. And it keeps us out of the touch, out of touch with that feeling of vulnerability that we all experience. Feelings of uncertainty or feelings of loss and sorrow. That's the human condition if we begin to take a look at it. As we go deeper within ourselves, oftentimes we, we touch a lot of sadness and a lot of sorrow. The sadness and sorrow that springs from loss, separation, not getting what we want. Opening to parts of ourselves that we don't like. What we're doing here, of course, is learning to respond to all the different aspects of ourselves, the ones we like and the ones that we don't like. And we're learning to respond with wisdom and compassion. Learning to respond to wisdom and compassion to our physical pain. Instead of just gritting the teeth and just digging in or, or just getting up as soon as you feel a little bit of discomfort, you know, hanging in there with it learning what's wise in that particular point in time for you, given your history with your body or the conditions that you're dealing with now. Learning to respond with compassion to physical pain or emotional pain. You know, instead of sitting and judging it or identifying with it, but opening to the suffering in that. There's a lot of suffering in emotions, moods, reactions that we have. And so opening our hearts to that, that's required in this path of awakening. This 
acknowledging, exploring and investigating the nature of this first noble truth, which is there's suffering. There's suffering going on. In many ways, the Buddha described this path, of course, maybe I'm repeating myself from my first talk. I can never remember what I said two nights ago. Um, but what we're, very much what we're doing is, is, of course, we're swimming upstream, we're moving against the tide. And in terms of learning to work with suffering so that wisdom and compassion arises out of it, uh, we're uh, confronting our condition, our conditioning, our conditioning around suffering. And for many of us, this discontent or unhappiness that's within us, um, we've been trained to deal with it in so many unhelpful ways. In so many unhelpful ways. Oftentimes people will try, you ever notice that? Sometimes when people try to console or help, they'll try to distract you. or you know, They'll try to think of all sorts of ways to, to get you to, to not feel it. You know, and, and most of us will begin to recognize that get over it kind of mentality, move on, let's do something fun, uh, attitude. Um, and of course, all they're doing, and we do this to ourselves and to others too, is, is reinforcing that sense that suffering is to be avoided, that we need to escape the suffering. So distracting ourselves. And of course, uh, the beauty of the conditions here at IMS is that the distractions are relatively limited. There aren't too many places you can go, although most of us probably are familiar with a few of them by now. Uh, we, we can certainly go into the world of fantasy, uh, and sometimes that, that provides an unhelpful escape uh, from the suffering, but it seems like it does at the time. Oftentimes we relate to suffering, you know, even if we know we're suffering, we don't have to be convinced. We know this first noble truth but often it leaves us very uh, discouraged, kind of despairing. Even sometimes we, we need to encounter uh, resignation in our relationship to it. Oftentimes, you know, that those are the kind of feelings or doubt arise when we do encounter the suffering on retreat. Because we feel often very discouraged if we keep sitting there and we're feeling sleepy or restlessness or the mind isn't settling down. Oftentimes it does feel very discouraging. Another way that uh, we've been conditioned to relate to suffering, of course, is that we tend to get lost in it. We get overwhelmed. If we know it and it's there, there's a strong tendency to get lost in that suffering or to be overwhelmed by its power. Another way that we tend to relate to our suffering, and these are ways that in some ways, can be real significant obstacles in terms of investigating or understanding suffering or even in letting go of suffering. Strong tendency, of course, is to identify with different expressions of suffering, whether it's body pain, claiming it to be me or mine, whether it's emotional pain. Um, So often when we meet our discontent, there's that judgment about it. I am that person. I am an angry person. I am a judgmental person. I'm a restless person. I'm a very, very sleepy person. Uh, you know, that I am, it's, it's, it adds. You know, it's identifying with those expressions of discontent in the mind. 
So instead, what we're training ourselves to do is we're learning to make an effort to respond to suffering with the intention instead to learn. Not with the intention to get rid of it. Not with the intention to get away from it. But it's to learn. It's a very, very different approach. One Zen master describes suffering as the gateway to liberation. The gateway to liberation. And of course, what she's pointing to is that um, it's the spirit of inquiry. It's the spirit of inquiry is really the foundation of what we're doing. As we're looking for ourselves with a very open mind to see what we discover. And as we explore and understand our suffering, we will also begin to understand the liberation from suffering. So the ways that we engage in this investigative process as we nurture this spirit of inquiry. And this spirit needs to be nurtured. It's not nat- necessarily a natural thing to do in some ways, because once again, it goes up against our conditioning. But one thing we're doing is we're training ourselves to be pres- present. We're training ourselves to be present. We're learning to rest our attention in the here and now. We're training ourselves to be with ourselves instead of running away. Learning to be more spacious, more allowing. That allows the truth to surface. That allows us to begin to see into our true nature. When we begin to let go of the agenda, when we let go of the attachment of how things should or shouldn't be, the mind begins to relax. So as we learn to be more allowing with our discontent, kind of leaving it alone and just allowing it to be there, bringing loving attention to discontent when it arises, to the conflicts in the mind or the resistance, just acknowledging it, opening to it. What we develop, of course, is this intimacy, creates a space so that we develop this intimacy with all aspects of ourselves. And when we develop this capacity to be more open to all different expressions of ourselves. When we develop that capacity to actually look at whatever is arising, we begin to understand the nature of our suffering. In other words, we begin to be able to investigate it. Because now we're holding it. With love and attention, we're allowing our experience to be exactly what it is. And so we can begin to investigate and observe and learn from the suffering. Rather than pushing it away, struggling with it, denying it, wishing it wasn't there, we can just be with our experience exactly as it is, and so we begin to understand it. It's that space of intimacy. 
What the Buddha discovered was the second noble truth, that the source of our suffering is ignorance. So the source of our liberation is seeing things as they are, seeing the truth. And the source of our suffering, according to the Buddha, is ignorance. It's not seeing clearly. It's not seeing clearly. One of the fundamental things that we don't see clearly, at least a lot of the time, is that we often don't see what leads to happiness and what leads to peace. Not seeing this, not understanding, not having a deep understanding of what leads to happiness or peace, that tends to throw us out of balance. We begin to seek happiness in places where, which are quite unreliable. We haven't discovered for ourselves what's going to lead to peace. And so we go towards things that we've been told, that we've been educated or trained to go towards. And that's, of course, in other words, we've been conditioned to respond, to react in certain ways, looking for refuge. The power of conditioning is very humbling. You really do get humbled along the way. Hopefully not humiliated, uh, but humble. It's a bit different, very different, actually. Something that humbled me when I, as you know by now, I was on staff <laughs> serving Narayan <laughs> and many other yogis. And actually, I was on staff for a few years. It was in the early days of IMS, just been around for a couple of years. And Buddhism. The retreats weren't this big. Uh, <coughs> Buddhism, meditation, even yoga was not, you know, wasn't really in the mainstream so much. There was some Zen, but it was pretty underground. It wasn't really appearing in the New York Times and places like that. Um, so the retreats were much smaller, and of course there was more time to kick back than there is now. Uh, we enjoyed ourselves. There was a small, tiny little staff of like ten or eleven of us, and. Much easier life back then, I tell you, than it is now. They work really, really hard. Um, And so we actually had time to play uh, quite regularly. And the summer was actually our slow season, which was kind of nice. And so being kind of a city person, I moved out here and the countryside and all of that. Um, And, um, you know, I had kind of a history growing up, brothers and playing sports. And even though I was too small to, to play organized sports, I like football, but I really wasn't built for it. And most sports I actually wasn't built for. Um, <laughs> but it didn't stop me anyway from playing with my brothers and everybody else that I could play with. Uh, so I was pretty much a fanatic, actually, when I was younger. And very competitive. Uh, so when I came on to this very cooled out place, IMS, everybody's meditating, being nice. Um, LAUGHTER one of my friends on staff, uh, who was here when I got here, um, was also sports nut. And um, one day he invited me to go play tennis. And um, you know, we found a couple of rackets down in the basement. Um, and, and maybe bought some tennis balls at the 
local supermarket or something. And then um, kind of went downtown Barry, and on the other side of Barry there were these tennis courts that nobody ever used. And that, that was unusual in itself because you know, in the city you have to kind of compete maybe for tennis court time. Uh, but here nobody was playing, and it was a beautiful environment. Um, and so we started playing tennis, and it, it was really a lot of fun. It was really balancing. It was great to do something physical, to get back into that with all the sitting. Uh, you know, it was really, really fun. So we were having a great time. And then we would come back from our tennis sessions in the afternoon, and we'd be talking about it, and it started getting kind of contagious, and people started getting interested. And pretty soon we had th- one person and two persons and three persons, and pretty soon there was a group of us, maybe, you know, maybe six or seven of us, um, that started playing. And there were enough courts to pretty much go around. But somebody had the bright idea of, let's have a tournament. <laughs> it wasn't enough just to play. We had to have an organized tournament with prizes. <laughs> These ridiculous prizes of <laughs> had no significance at all. Um, so there were prizes, there was a tournament, you know, there's all these charts going up uh, showing the winners and the losers. And we started playing, and, and there was a subtle shift. Maybe it wasn't subtle, um, but there was a shift in the energy and the spirit in which we started playing. Uh, we started working a lot harder at it, uh, and it, it started getting a little more serious. Uh, and then, you know, pretty soon you really wanted to beat that other person. You didn't want to just play tennis. You wanted to win. Um, and, you know, people would be chuckling at the losers and, you know, I mean, really not treating each other very nicely when you look back at it. And, uh, you know, pretty soon it turned into kind of this cutthroat competition. Uh, and that we're meditators, mind you. Uh, and we're kind of just kind of lost control of the whole situation. And finally, when someone won, it was like this great relief to let it all go. And we actually dropped tennis very shortly after that. You know? I mean, we could have had a nice fall playing tennis, but just we got into such a thing about it that um, it wasn't enjoyable anymore. And, and, um, and you think we would have really learned something from that experience, like we would have had enough insight, but the power of conditioning. In the winter, <laughs> we took up ping pong. And we had a tournament. (laughs) And I won. (laughs) I still remember that. (laughs) I did reflect about this afterwards, though. And sometimes insight or wisdom uh, comes after the fact. That's the, that, that really is how it works sometimes. And it was humbling, basically, to see that whole process unfold that way. Um, and we did talk about it uh, later, um, just about kind of what went wrong. And what we realized is we just got plugged in. The conditions arose, and we, there wasn't enough mindfulness to see what we were doing. And you know, to this day, I'm not, it's not, this isn't an anti-competition message. But it, it really is pointing to the fact that um, <coughs> we, we create a lot of suffering for ourselves you know, by our delusion, by our conditioning, by getting caught 
and what we would be talking about is habits of mind. And that's exactly what happened. People got, got caught in these habits of mind. People, even diligent, aspiring, very good intention, kind people, still got caught in their uh, conditioning. So it does happen. So that's why one needs to be patient and realize this process of letting go of one's conditioning. Is, is, it's a gradual process. So as practice matures, as we develop this ability, and this ability often develops over a course of a retreat. Sometimes you can see that development over the course of a retreat, but but more important, it's it's something that develops through not just on retreat, but in your daily life. And so it's it's making your life your practice, taking that spirit of inquiry or mindfulness and awareness and bringing it into all aspects of your life. Well, what begins to happen is uh, that we begin to see, sometimes this insight doesn't come very easy, uh, but it does come, which is we begin to see the changing nature of, of our experiences. And we begin to see, just even on this retreat, beginning to see the changing nature of those states of mind of sleepiness, that they come and go. Sometimes they arise under certain conditions in the morning or the day, or they arise during a sitting, but they don't arise when we're walking. Maybe there's not as much sleepiness now as there was at the beginning of a retreat. Uh, That's an insight to notice that, to see those changes happen. Uh, We see our judgments coming and going. Something arises. Something bothers us. Somebody coughs. Somebody does something. Somebody does. And there's a reaction, perhaps, of of aversion in the mind, or, or even maybe... One responds with compassion. But even compassion comes and goes. Mindfulness comes and goes. And we begin to see the changing nature of our experience, and we can see it much more closely oftentimes on retreat under these conditions because we're looking in a very sustained way. And so slowly but surely, the mind begins to re-educate itself it begins to respond to the things that we encounter within this body-mind process. It learns to, to respond differently. It begins to undergo this process, this process of freedom, of deconditioning the mind, so that the mind isn't always habitually reacting in the same way with the same intensity. So when we encounter a state of mind or a body pain, you know, some particular mood that we might find ourselves in, we learn to re- not react so harshly, not to react against it so much if it's unpleasant. If the mind is feeling peaceful in the sitting, you know, instead of clinging to it, you know, we've been there before, we know what it feels like to have a few moments of peace, and we realize it's not, not to attach to it so much. You know, experience it, enjoy it, investigate it, rest your attention on those feelings of peace, But if we attach to it, we get into trouble because then we want it back. And we're starting that cycle again, the cycle of non-peace, the cycle of non-peace by attaching to it. And so slowly but surely, we begin to not identify with these states of mind. We begin not to identify with the worrying mind or the angry mind 
or the planning mind, or the mind that fantasizes, or the peaceful mind, or the concentrated mind, or the insightful mind. Whatever way the body-mind is expressing itself, we learn not to claim it, not to hold on to it so tightly, not to put all our self-worth in that one particular experience, not to invest all our happiness in that one moment in time. And so we begin to actually relax. We begin to relax. Because we don't have to hold on so tight. We begin to discover that inner spaciousness that we're talking about, which accommodates, makes room for experiences as they arise and pass away. And this relaxation... It's moving in the direction of non-reactivity, of equanimity, this inner balance of mind that with all the coming and going of experiences, with all the ups and downs, all the pleasant states of mind and the unpleasant states of mind, the mind begins to develop a balance. It doesn't struggle with the experiences as much. we begin truly to let go of needing to have an agenda. We don't need conditions to be a certain way. We can begin to taste a different kind of peace. A peace that's unconditional. Not depending on a particular condition in the body. Not depending on a particular condition in the mind not even depending on a condition in the environment. Because if our happiness rests on any one of these conditions, if it rests exclusively on any one of these conditions, it's a very fragile peace. In fact, it's a peace that underneath it will generate a lot of anxiety. Because the more things change, the more we might grasp. And then change becomes threatening. And so as we move towards this unconditional peace, we're talking about discovering the third noble truth, which is cessation of suffering. What we begin to do on this path is we begin to live life differently, fundamentally differently. From the outside, it may look exactly the same. But inwardly, it doesn't. The experience is fundamentally different. One thing we begin to learn to do is that when pleasant experiences arise in our experience, first of all, we can enjoy them. We're actually present for pleasant experiences. Sometimes people associate uh, meditation with pain um, and that the practice with only difficulties. 
But the fact is, what we're training ourselves to do is be in life, to live in the present, to be here, to, to open to all the pleasures, the pain in life, even the things that aren't pleasurable or aren't painful, the things that we tend to ignore. And so we learn to open to pleasure and enjoy it, but also let it go. We understand that our happiness doesn't rest on that pleasure, lasting and lasting and lasting. That's not the nature of that pleasant experience. If it does, we're out of harmony. It creates tension in the mind. When unpleasant experiences arises in the body or the mind or dealing with conditions that are difficult in our life, of course, many of us, of course, do uh, on a day-to-day basis. When we encounter unpleasant experiences, instead of automatically reacting with aversion or fear, you know, contracting and closing down, pain becomes more workable. Unpleasant experiences become more workable. We can meet them with a more open heart with more compassion. We've trained our minds to do that. We've trained our minds to do that with ourselves. And this translates into how we respond to situations, conditions, and relationships that we then engage in. We begin to apply that exact same principle. And as we begin to relax more, as we develop this sense of ease, that does come out of practice. Being able to live in life under challenging conditions, wonderful conditions, there's a sense of ease that develops and a confidence that we can meet the difficulties and challenges along the way. We can learn from them and not necessarily repeat our mistakes. Tremendously uh, faith producing, seeing ourselves do that over the course of time to see those changes occur. And what happens is there's a profound letting go of this burden. This burden that we've been carrying for a very, very long time. And the Buddha described this letting go of the burden as the heart's release. It's the heart's release letting go of the torments of heart. And as we relax, open, in this very balanced place, we can touch our true nature. We can touch the unconditioned, that which doesn't arise and pass away, that which is your birthright, that which is there all the time, but that's somehow obscured, obscured by our delusion, our confusion, our looking someplace else. What we learn to do is, instead of always looking at outside conditions, it's not that one becomes indifferent to conditions. In fact, I think one becomes much better at taking care of oneself and others. So this kind of relaxation is not indifference. we begin to discover a more lasting, a more reliable refuge. A refuge which isn't conditioned. The Buddha called it the deathless, the uncreated, 
the unborn, that which is always there. It doesn't exist. It doesn't arise and pass away. It's your true nature. And the Buddha didn't stop there, not with that understanding. His investigation was quite profound, actually, not just there, but also in describing the path. Describing the path. And of course, the path is exactly what we're doing here. The path is exactly what we're doing here. We're trying, we're making an effort to bring awareness into all aspects of our lives. That's the path. That's the essence of the path, is to bring awareness into all aspects of our lives. The aspects we don't like, that we do like, all activities that we engage in. Bringing awareness. Training the mind, training the heart to pay attention and to wake up. Let's sit for a couple minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.